Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Jesus said that he came that he might give freedom to us. And who the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. Paul said of us that we of all people are the most free. We have real riches. We have true riches. We know what life is truly all about. It is the truth of God's Word that sets people free. The book of 2 Peter states that when someone who claims to be a teacher of God's Word perverts that truth and teaches false doctrine, using their position to take advantage of people, watch out. God's Word promises they will perish in their own corruption. We continue with the warnings found in 2 Peter chapter 2. Here comes Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. If God will destroy a great number of people when they become violent and when they become ungodly, then certainly God will destroy these false teachers that he's speaking of. He's using these not as examples. Do you remember I started chapter two last week by talking about how pastors, this is kind of dangerous ground for pastors. This is where you can get bogged down and you can lose uh, the, the overall sense of the chapter. You can kind of get stuck in the mud, as it were, here. Not that the Word of God is muddy, but the topics here are topics that can bog you down. You can get stuck talking about angels and demonic forces and women, and is it possible for there to be a sexual union between the two? It's possible to get bogged down into the flood and talking about the flood and miss the point of what he's saying. The point is, God destroyed the entire world one day when the world went astray and saved eight righteous people. So why don't you become one of those eight righteous people? If God saved eight righteous people but destroyed the rest of the world, then we better make sure that we're following him the way we're supposed to, especially those of us who are entrusted with the word of God, who are entrusted as pastors and teachers and leaders to lead God's people. Then we need to make sure that we follow properly. He goes on to say in verse six, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Condemned, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. If God judged angels, God judged the world in the flood, and if God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, turned them to ashes and brought them destruction, then God certainly will destroy those who are teaching false doctrines. Now, what was the reason that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody venture to yell it out? What's the reason that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, you guys have read your Bible. That's a good thing. Um, homosexuality is not why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality was, was practiced in Sodom and Gomorrah, but so was all other kinds of sexual perversion. The problem in Sodom and Gomorrah is that people were living for their own pleasure. And when you begin as an individual to live for your own pleasure, whatever kind of perversion you're entering into, and I always hesitate to use that word because it sounds like such a preacher word, doesn't it? Perversion. There's perversion out there somewhere, you know? Doesn't it just sound like a preacher word, a, a Bible word, a church word? I went to church and the pastor talked about perversion. When I used to... Uh, when I used to do upholstery, in my toolbox, I had a, a giant screwdriver. 
and I never used it as a screwdriver. I never found a screw big enough to, to use it as a screwdriver. Instead, I used it when I had to bend something or I used it when I had to pop something out, when I needed a lot of leverage. I'd get that screwdriver and get it in there and I'd bend it down. The screwdriver would bend and, and, and I probably was lucky that it didn't snap and fly into my eye. At the very least, give me stitches because they make tools like crowbars and other things that are made for that very purpose. Did I have one of those in my toolbox? No. I made do with what I had. And in that way, I was perverting the use of the screwdriver. They made that screwdriver to take out giant screws, I suspect, although I never saw any of them. They made them for that, but I was using it for something else. And so if a man has sex with a man, a woman has sex with a woman, or Leviticus talks about men and women having sex with animals, if that, and all in the same verse, by the way, all in the same section, whole chapter in Leviticus, which was so much fun to cover. Um, it's a perversion in the sheer sense of the word. God made the body of a man for the body of a woman. And then God made a man to be committed to a woman and for those two to join together and to give each other pleasure. God's the one that came up with the sexual union. It was his idea. God's the one that came up with it. It's not dirty, perverted when it's done the way God wants it to be done. And it honors a husband and a wife when it's practiced properly. But when it's practiced outside of those, it becomes a perversion. And it becomes a perversion because they're seeking their own pleasure. When you're just trying to please yourself in the sexual act, how, whatever way, whatever perversion you might be using to please yourself, then you become selfish. And when you become selfish, you're not concerned about those who are suffering. You have no compassion because all you care about is pleasing yourself. And so God says in the book of Psalms that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they didn't take care of the poor, because they were so caught in, focused in on their own pleasures and their own desires that they didn't take care of the poor. And so God destroyed them. Also, you remember that when the angels went, they wanted to camp in the, in the, the gate area. The gate area was like the porch of the city, and it was where, ever, where the court would take place in the gate area. It's where the market would be set up a couple times a week, and you could go buy whatever you wanted to buy, usually in the area of the gated area. And these guys just said, we're going to go ahead and sleep in this area. And Lot said, no, you don't want to. Because when people slept in that gated area in Sodom and Gomorrah, when weary strangers would come by that city and sleep in that area, whether they were women or men, they would be raped. These men had gotten so, they, they cared so little about people that they used them for their own sexual gratification. It's not about homosexuality. It's about that self-gratification and the willingness to rape somebody, man, woman, whatever, in order to get their own self-gratification. And in this way, false teachers are like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because all they care about is their own pleasure. All they care about is their own covetousness. All they care about is what they get, that they don't mind leading people astray. Maybe even, if you could even fathom it, even worse than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were willing to rape men and women that, that, that took refuge in their city 
because in essence, they are taking advantage of the people that they are teaching. They have been given a platform and they could use that platform to change their lives. They could use that platform to set people free. Jesus said that he came that he might give freedom to us. And who the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. Paul said of us that we of all people are the most free. We have real riches. We have true riches. We know what life is truly all about. And when someone uses that platform to be able to get something for themselves, when, uh, even when someone who is a true teacher takes advantage of the body, it is such an awful thing. Pastoral ethics. When someone says, when, when someone's ministering to you, a pastor, they're doing funerals for you of people you love, someone you've lost. They're there for you in the grieving process. They're, they're marrying you. They're teaching you. They're teaching you the word of God. And then they use that position to take advantage for themselves in whatever way. There was a pastor years ago who began to visit the people who were sick. One particular guy who we finally found out had AIDS and the guy was ministering there a lot to him. And from the outside, it looked great. Wow, this guy really cares for, for this guy. He's struggling with AIDS and people want to stay away from him. People are afraid of him and he's there until we found out that he was stealing his medication. And it's a breach of, it's a breach of pastoral ethics. It's a breach of pastoral ethics when someone is teaching you the word of God and you want to help them out and you do, would do almost anything for someone who you're receiving the word of God for and you're receiving so much from them and you're being blessed on a regular basis. And so then when you say to a pastor, is there any way I can help you out? And they say, well, I can't really make my electric bill now. Could you help me out with that? That's a, that's a breach of pastoral ethics. A pastor should never be doing that. Never. And I've said for years, if that ever happens with a pastor, one of our pastors on staff, someone connected to the church, come and let us know immediately. Not just that we'll fire them, but we'll pay their electric bill so they can stop poor mouthing to the body that they're supposed to be ministering to. So we have angels who God judged when they got out of line. How much more the great position of teaching the word of God that we've been given. We have a great number of people that God destroyed because a great number of people became wicked and God destroyed everybody but eight people. And we've got people that sought their own pleasure to the perversion of any way that they could possibly pervert. And they were willing to take advantage of people to do it. Even as when people teach false teachings, they're doing it out of covetousness for themselves. Now, those are three pretty heavy passages, aren't they? Those are three, well, shouldn't say passages. I should say examples. Those are three heavy examples. And if you are by any means are a false teacher, if you're just not teaching the truth, if you're in it for yourself, if you're doing it for, for greedy gain, if there's any other reason than an honest desire to see God's people fed and grown and in love with Jesus and established in Christ, then you better turn and run from that because your destruction doesn't slumber. He goes on to say here, then in verse seven, and delivered righteous lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And again, the filthy conduct of the wicked was they're seeking for their own pleasure, their destruction, their, their willingness to destroy and take advantage of people. And he was, he was oppressed by their 
filthy conduct. In the end, only three people escaped out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his two daughters. God honors those who are righteous. How do you and I become righteous? By the blood of the Lamb of God, who forgives our sins, who cleanses us, that in the moment that we confess our sins, he forgives those and he works out salvation in our lives. He sanctifies us and we are righteous so that we can go on. The fact that he talks about those who were destroyed and then those who escaped and how Noah escaped, those who were uh, the world when it was destroyed, tells us that you can even repent now. That you can say, I really want to make sure I'm using the position that God's given me as a pastor, as a teacher, as a elder, as a deacon, for what God wants me to use the position for, not for personal selfish gain. Then in verse eight, it says, for the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now there's a lot in there. Lot should not have been in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham and Lot were traveling together and the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of, of Lot began to fight because they got too big. There was not enough pasture for them to travel together. They had to break up. And so Abraham said to Lot, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the north and I'll go to the south. Now, God hadn't promised Lot the land. God had promised Abraham the land. He said, leave your father and mother and go to the land that I show you. And he brought him into Israel. And the Bible says that Lot turned and looked towards the well-watered plains of Sodom. That area today is the area of the Dead Sea. We don't see the well-watered plains and, and where they were. We don't even know for sure, although there are certain people who will tell you they know for sure where Sodom and Gomorrah is. We don't really know for sure where that's at. There's certain soot level, ash levels that have been found, uh, interestingly enough, at the exact right time and place in that area. But we don't know exactly where it was at. And um, so Lot turns and looks towards the well-watered plains. It says, first of all, I looked towards them, and then he moved into the plains, and then he moved into the city, and then he was in the gates of the city, which means there was this progression in Lot's life where he looked towards the things of the world, then he moved towards the things of the world, then he moved into the city, and then he was even in the leadership in that city. And it cost him, it cost him his wife. It cost him eventually, if you know the story, it cost him his, his two daughters in a way who escaped with him. Had he just chosen to go another way? When Lot left Abraham, God said to Abraham, look up, Abraham. And God generally doesn't say look up if you're not looking up. I think Abraham was hanging his head. I think Lot looked around, picked the best land and went, I'm gonna go there. And I think Abraham had his head down going, what a chump. He took the best land. And God said, look up, Abraham, and look to the north and look to the south and look to the east and to the west. For I have given you all of this land for you and your descendants. Lot should have never have turned and, and Abraham packed, his, packed up his things and he went away. Lot should have found a different way to go than to look towards the things of the, of the city. It goes on to say in verse nine, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. That's a good verse. And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. There, we all are tempted. Jesus was without sin, Hebrews tells us, uh, yet he was tempted in every way that we are. 
God knows how to deliver the righteous out of temptation. Those that have a right relationship with God, those that have a right heart, those who are sincere and want to truly follow God, God knows how to deliver you out of temptation, but he also knows how to hold the unjust for judgment. Those who would, who would boldly step up and say, I'm bringing you the truth. Those who would boldly step up and say, what I've got is the truth and it's better. And there's often, there's often like an excitement that comes with false teaching. There's a, there's a, a certain amount of, of dynamic, I don't want to use the word energy, but just, there's something just dynamic about a false teaching because it's got a sense of newness, because it's false. You go to church and you hear the gospel and you hear the gospel and you hear the word of God and you hear the word of God and you hear the word of God. And all of a sudden there's somebody that comes along and says, listen, I want to tell you, God wants you to be rich. Mm. Really? I haven't heard that before. God wants me to be rich. God wants you to be rich. And all of a sudden you're listening to what they say, but God knows how to reserve those people for the day of punishment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, and they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They aren't afraid to cr criticize those that God's really using criticize those who were really in the church. They're presumptuous in that they're presuming themselves into a position that isn't even theirs. They're taking that position and they're not afraid to speak badly of dignitaries. Those are the people that God, that God is genuinely using. In fact, they'll claim that they're the anointed ones and that you better not touch them. Better not lay your hands on God's anointed, which by the way, is always, I realize that, uh, that David said that about Saul, that I will not put my hand on God's anointed. But when a person uses it for themselves, it's a warning sign. When you have the heart of saying, you know what? I want to honor those that God has anointed and empowered. That's a good thing. David had that heart. It's a good thing. But when you say as a teacher or a pastor or a leader, don't you touch God's anointed. Don't you criticize me. That's always a warning sign. Always a warning sign. That will tell you that where there is smoke, there is fire. And there's something going on behind the scenes that should not be going on. And that person doesn't want to have what he's doing, saying, or teaching being tested. It goes on to say, verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might did not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and they utterly perish in their own corruption. Again, verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring reviling accusations against them. We know that, that Michael, and we'll talk about this at another point, did not bring a reviling accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you because of the respect that he had. Again, you, you got to be careful because when a pastor and a teacher says, don't you speak against me, hey, your, the conduct of your life ought to be such that it can withstand scrutiny. What you're saying and the substance of what you're saying ought to be able to handle scrutiny. It ought to be able to handle. And if someone's attacking you personally and trying to destroy your reputation, then God's the greatest defender you can have. I love again that David wouldn't defend himself. 
even saying, if I defend myself, then God won't defend me. God's the one who can defend us. And what God has established, no man can destroy. There can be great confidence that you just put your nose where it needs to be. Put your eyes right in front of you. Do the work that God's called you to do. If he's called you to be a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, a leader, if you're a Bible study leader, then just put yourself on the truth. Make sure you're studying the scriptures to find out what that truth is because the last thing that we want to be are those that bring false teachings. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for the revelation that we find in your word and the warning against false teachers. Lord, we pray, first of all, that you would grant repentance to these men and women who are teaching false things that you would save them from the destruction that is on its way to them, their destruction that doesn't slumber at all, that you would be merciful to them. But God, that you would also be merciful to those who are listening and that we as individuals would not be open to false teachings. We want to have discernment and we want to have wisdom when it comes to making sure that what we're getting is your word that can transform us and change us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. And I'd like to ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done. We'll dismiss you here shortly. I wanna give you an opportunity if you're here today and you have never invited Jesus into your life. You've never said, I wanna serve him and I wanna follow him. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 10, that as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God, even to those who believe in his name. And the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, everything becomes new. When you are born again, there is a dynamic change that takes place within you. You suddenly find yourself drawn to God and drawn to the things of God and wanting to be used by Him, forgiven of your sin, entering into a relationship with Him and being used by Him, finding the very reason that God created you and being used by Him to be a light in the midst of a dark world. And if you're here today and you've never invited Christ into your life, but you wanna do that today, then I'm gonna ask you to do something simple. Right where you are right now, raise your hand. Lift your hand up now. Lift it up high so I can see it. I wanna take time to acknowledge your hands and then pray with you. God bless you, sir. Right on the aisle. That's great. Anybody else? God bless you. Over to the right. Sir, there in the front. And ma'am, a little bit further back in the middle. That's great. If you're here today and you want to invite him in, this is a special moment, a moment where God is setting people free. Just raise your hand now. All right. You could put your hands down. And I would like everyone, and I saw your hand here in the middle too, sir. Just off to my right. I'd like everyone, including those who raised their hands, to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I've sinned and I know my sin has separated me from you. I also understand I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life and I turn from my sin that I can live for you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to the family of God. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.